right, please stand with me if you are able for this reading of God's holy word. Today's scripture comes from Luke 4, 14 through 30. So please read the verses in bold with me. And Jesus returned in power of the spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was the custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set all to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the Lord of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, to hear in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but one, only Zarephath, in the land of Sid Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome, and uh, we're in a sermon series we're calling uh, that you may know. Did I get that right? Luke 4 this week, verses 14 to 30, my Bible calls it, uh, Jesus Rejected at Nazareth, but I've entitled the sermon, In His Steps. In 1896, a guy named Charles Sheldon wrote a little novel called In His Steps. It's the story of a guy named Reverend, Hever Reverend Henry Maxwell, and this pastor begins to encounter individuals outside of his church who are entangled in some of the world's uh, worst social ills at the time, in uh, the author's opinion. He encounters a homeless man and other drunkards, prostitutes, and gamblers. Each 
of them in their encounter with Pastor Maxwell at some point or another um, challenge his emphasis in his ministry, his emphasis on Sunday morning worship and preaching and prayer and his energy put towards churchgoers while in their perspective ignoring the plight of the poor and the sinful. And in each point in these interactions, it, each one of these characters asks Reverend Maxwell a question that is now so famous, it seems cliche. What would Jesus do? Maybe you had a bracelet that said WWJD on it at some point in uh, years past, in, in youth group in the late 90s or the early 2000s. Maybe you thought that that phrase was a bygone trend of Christian pop culture in the 90s, and if you thought that you were right, you just got the century wrong. 1890s is when Charles Sheldon wrote a little book that sold 30 million copies worldwide and uh, was translated into multiple languages and eventually became something of a motivational text for a whole movement of Christianity in the late 1800s and early 1900s that in good ways uh, emphasized a moral life and social action by the church, uh, but that some would say overemphasized uh, what we would call social justice and, and underemphasized the centrality of God's word and Jesus' role as our Savior, rather than just as an example uh, whose life you should do like. And so it begs the question, I think, if you're going to ask, what would Jesus do, or how do I walk in his steps, uh, what did Jesus really do in his life? And the text that we read this morning, of Luke 4, 14 to 30, is Luke's version of Jesus' public first public appearance. This is the inauguration of his public ministry, his appearance in Nazareth. And in some ways, it's a bit of a microcosm. What Jesus does in this passage that we read this morning is a bit of a microcosm of what Jesus actually did throughout his ministry on earth. And so, uh, in the spirit of the late 1990s, in the early 2000s, when WWJD was everywhere, and David Letterman was the hottest thing on late night television. Back in that day, Olivia, my wife and I were youth pastors in junior high uh, youth ministry, and every week at junior high uh, youth group, we would have a top 10 list. Sometimes it would be a joke, sometimes it would actually uh, be the teaching for the day. And so this morning, I want to offer you from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. Ten things that Jesus actually did in his first recorded public appearance and throughout his life and ministry. Number ten, he went to church. Maybe you've heard it said by someone somewhere that, you know, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church. Or maybe corporate worship services are not really that important to me. My faith is really more about sensing God's leading and following Jesus' example. But if we're really interested in following Jesus' example, it should be noted that verse 15 and 16 say that the first thing we're told about Jesus' public ministry is that 
as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. In fact, verse 14 earlier follows the theme of the rest of the Gospel of Luke that has been telling us that Jesus' life was led by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 says that he was led by the Spirit or in the Spirit. And we've been told earlier that the Spirit of God uh, descended on Jesus at his baptism in uh, chapter 3, that it led him into the desert to do battle with uh, the devil and with temptation earlier in chapter 4. And now we're being told that as Jesus returned, he returns in the power of the Spirit. And the first place that we're told that the Spirit leads him to is to the synagogues all around Galilee and ultimately to church as it was at the time, church in his hometown, which was his custom every Sabbath. Jesus went to church. One of the ways that we can uh, think about what the scripture is talking about when it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit is to imagine uh, or to realize that what the scripture is describing for us in Jesus's life is what it would look like if we saw a human being perfectly being obedient to God's leading and his purpose in their life, the Holy Spirit's leading, this is what it would look like. And Jesus demonstrates in uh, the beginning of our passage this morning what the Westminster Catechism is trying to get at with its first question. What's the chief end of man? What's the purpose of humanity? The answer that they give is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Jesus knew that humans were made for worship. He knew that God uh, designed us for relationship and that those two things come together in the synagogue. They come together when God's people gather to worship. Corporate worship is what we were made for. Jeremy mentioned that in the call to worship. Uh, whether we realize it or not, we have a need for this. We were designed for this. And Jesus went to church. Number nine, Jesus loved God's word. A worship service in the synagogue would have included reciting the prayer uh, from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It would have included singing psalms from the book of Psalms, reading from the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, and it would always include a reading from the prophets. And uh, so it was a service that was loaded with scripture, and if you were a, uh, a visiting preacher um, to a synagogue, our, our friend Pastor Daniel is visiting Risen Hayward, another church this morning, and thank goodness for visiting preachers today. They don't just hand you the text and say, choose something to preach on. You get a little preparation. But uh, Jesus was handed the, the community scroll of the book of Isaiah, both there was a community scroll, both because not everybody could read, let alone afford to have a scroll. So it was kept at the synagogue. But what we're told is that Jesus turned to the place that he knew was appropriate for the day and what he wanted to teach on, which is significant because it's likely that that scroll had no titles, no section headings, no uh, verse numbers, and possibly no punctuation. So he knew the scripture well enough to say, this is the part that I'm going to read. And he turns to Isaiah 61 and, re and, and reads for them verses 1 and 2, which we read this morning. So Jesus loved God's word. He went to church and he loved God's word. That's number 10 and number 9. And numbers 8 and 7 
and 6 and 5, Jesus demonstrates two ways that God equips us when we know and love His Word. Uh, Knowing and loving God's Word allows us to proclaim truth into situations that we find ourselves in or that we see around us. And knowing and loving God's Word allows us to respond truthfully uh, to situations that come upon us. Let me show you what I mean. Number eight, Jesus proclaimed good news. He went to church. He loved God's Word. He proclaimed good news. Jesus came to proclaim something. That word gets repeated three times in the verse uh, that he reads from Isaiah. He came to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that language, the year of the Lord's favor, is Isaiah quoting from or, uh, or, uh, or taking ideas from the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, it talks about this thing called the year of Jubilee. And the design was that Every 50 years in Israel, there would be a year of jubilee. And in that year, um, slaves would be set free from servitude. People who had indentured themselves to pay off debts would be set free. And property that had been lost would be restored to families that were, were its original owners. And... Uh, debtors would be released from whatever the balance on their debt was and start over with a perfect credit score. And the, the thing about the year of Jubilee is that in the history of Israel, it never came. It had been designed in Leviticus at every 50 years, you do this. And in the history of God's people, they had never been faithful long enough to get to a year of Jubilee, never 50 years in a row. And so Isaiah takes up that theme and starts suggesting in his uh, prophecy that God himself would have to visit his people for Jubilee to be experienced. If Jubilee were ever to actually materialize, God would have to show up and make it happen himself. And Jesus says in verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. He's proclaiming that he is God come to us. He starts by quoting Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he ends by saying today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying that he is the suffering servant that Isaiah was talking about in that portion of his prophecy, that he's God come among us and he's come to bring deliverance from the power of sin in the lives that we live. He's proclaiming, uh, pro- proclaiming was Jesus's primary objective. Proclaiming that message was Jesus' priority in when, for which he came. He was going to speak that message into every situation that he found himself in. God has come to restore relationship, to make things new, to cancel the debt of sin. And he's come. I am the fulfillment of that scripture. And he's going to speak that message into every place that he found himself where the power of sin could be seen manifesting itself in the physical world. Poverty, captivity, blindness, oppression. It is Jesus' proclamation, and it's our confession, 
that at the core of each of these maladies, each of these problems in society or in creation, at the core of each of these is humanity's rebellion against God. We got to this place because people uh, reject God. Humanity's rebellion against God has stripped us of all that God intended for us to possess as his image bearers, as his stewards of creation, as uh, his sons and daughters. We are captive to beliefs and expectations about our situation that can't be true because they don't include God. We are, uh, we're lost around our purpose and around direction in life without an explanation because we don't know the truth about God. That's what the scripture says. We don't understand uh, and we suffer because of our own decisions, our own sin. And we make others suffer by what we do. We use and we take advantage and we manipulate. And Jesus said that he came to proclaim a year of jubilee from all of that. In fact, the jubilee. In him, Jesus says, we will find rich forgiveness and freedom, and comfort, and relief. And uh, Jesus proclaims that truth as we watch his ministry starting from here into all kinds of situations. He brings good news where there's confusion. Uh, this is the, one of the ways that God equips us uh, by uh, Jesus walking into a situation and then speaking truth about uh, what people are confused about. That's certainly what our hope is as we're preparing something like a cultural conversation about body and gender and sex. We know that we're living in a time when we're all confused. And uh, we're hopeful that as we dig into God's word and find uh, that there is good news for ourselves and others as we look at what God says about our bodies. That's the subtitle of the book we're going to look at, How the Gospel is Good News for Our Physical Selves. So, the first thing that we do is proclaim. The first thing that Jesus did was proclaim. And then it says, number seven, number six, and number five. Cared for the poor, gave sight to the blind, liberated the oppressed and the captive. It says that he came to proclaim those things. But Jesus' love for God's word went beyond just proclaiming uh, or quoting uh, giving good quotes from the Old Testament about poverty and blindness and captivity. Uh, but he actually responds in situations when he encounters those things and cares for people. If you were blind and you encountered Jesus and believed his words, you might actually receive physical sight. If you were poor and hungry, you might actually eat loaves and fishes that had been multiplied in front of you. People were set free from demonic oppression and tax collectors paid back ill-gotten gains after they encountered Jesus. Because of his action, because Jesus' actions matched his proclamation, um, people were compelled. He was interested in relieving the physical pain and sickness and poverty of the people that he encountered. And as he used these opportunities to provide physically and materially, he demonstrated that he had the power to do the other things that he said he came to do. Forgive sins, rise again from the dead, restore relationship with God. We can get a little bit off track if we, get, uh, if we fixate only 
on the social and the medical and the material blessing that Jesus came to give. If you read the stories, it's there. People, blind people see. Physical maladies are healed. But if we say that Jesus' primary aim was to alleviate physical poverty and to undo oppressive political systems, then we're minimizing Jesus' mission, for one, because undoing the consequences of sin is far more cosmic as we understand creation than giving somebody sight. But we also have to concede that if that was Jesus' mission, that he failed. Um, Roman census would demonstrate to you that there's probably no measurable decrease in blindness in the Roman Empire during Jesus' ministry. We're talking about encountered Jesus and believed he was getting at something else. There's still a daily opportunity for followers of Jesus to respond truthfully and lovingly with healing and care to the ravages of sin that we encounter around us. We live in a fallen world, and uh, it is our calling to match our proclamation with the work that we do. In our mercy ministry training, there's going to be a few uh, going through that training this afternoon, uh, we talk about how as agents of the kingdom, uh, as those who proclaim the jubilee of Jesus, we could say, believers should seek to bring substantial healing to the effects of sin in all areas of life, including the psychological, the social, the economic, and the physical. To put it uh, a little bit more narratively, in our mercy ministry training, the, the primary text is looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, the longer you walk through a broken city and past uh, people struggling with homelessness and addiction to go to a meeting to talk about the Good Samaritan, the more conviction you get that uh, if we're not careful, we're like the Believers that walk past on the other side of the road. One of the ways our diaconate has begun to think about how we could do this more intentionally, respond truthfully uh, to the, the, the ravages of sin that we see around us, uh, is that uh, we've begun to uh, sort of uh, almost covertly send members of our diaconate to explore a, uh, a shower ministry that happens on C Street on Saturdays and Sundays every weekend. There's a trailer that a pastor and his wife set up with two showers in it and uh, two little bathrooms and every Saturday and Sunday 30 uh, homeless folks get a hot shower and a clean pair of underwear and uh, we're starting to wonder what it is that we could do uh, like that or with them to see uh, to see grace be a place that's truthfully responding at least to that part of the brokenness around us. If you're interested, I can point you to a, a deacon or a deaconess who can take you on that field trip and show you uh, that ministry. So number 10, Jesus went to church. Number nine, he loved God's word. Number eight, he proclaimed good news. Number seven, six, and five, he responded truthfully to the ravages of sin. And number four, he experienced wild popularity. People loved him. At the beginning of the passage this morning, Jesus was the hottest thing around. Verse 14 says that the report about him went out through all the surrounding country and that he taught in their synagogues and he was glorified by all. And in verse 22, it says that 
all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now let me say this. Thank God that being glorified and spoken well of by people wasn't Jesus' purpose or mission. Sadly, some of, I would say more than I'd like to admit, some of my favorite preachers and Christian authors from the late 90s and early 2000s, the WWJD era, uh, have had their ministries disintegrate or implode expressly because of their celebrity. Because they either veered away from the truth of the scriptures into teaching that people wanted to hear and were craving to hear from them, or because their power and the influence of their fame corrupted their character and their leadership and imploded their ministries. Thank God that wasn't Jesus's purpose. In fact, number three, Jesus was regularly in the practice of offending and resisting people's prescriptions for his ministry. Part of the nature of proclamation, of a ministry of proclamation, is that people can choose whether or not to believe what you're proclaiming. People can choose to accept it or not. And what we immediately see is that people are incredulous about Jesus' claim to be a Messiah. He said, uh, isn't this Joseph's son? We know this guy's dad. He's just a carpenter. And later, uh, we hear them say, uh, we've heard that you, we've heard what you did in Capernaum. Do it here in your hometown as well. There's a bit of a sense from Jesus' audience in Nazareth that they want him to do what they ask him to do. Do what we ask for and then we'll believe. Or, or a sense of entitlement, right? Like, hey, we're like God's chosen people and we're from your hometown. So why don't you do something special for us? And isn't that the way that we like to operate towards God? If you really loved me, then you would, dot, dot, dot. Or if you would just do this, if you could just get me out of this, then we'll make a deal. If you do this, then I will believe, or then I will follow. But that's not the way that it actually works in Jesus' ministry either. It's, you see, Jesus goes places and proclaims who he is, and he invites people to believe, to hear the good news about Jesus and believe that he is the Savior, uh, that he came to bring Jubilee, and, uh, and, then, and then in belief is where we see Jesus doing great works and talking about how uh, this is a place I, that, I can, that I can demonstrate my power because I haven't seen faith like this in Israel, but I've seen it here. It comes uh, by believing first. That's when we start to see he's, his working in our lives and our heart. When we repent and believe, that's when we start to experience him freeing us from our captivity to sin and uh, to sin in our lives. When we believe, that's when uh, we start to see uh, his forgiveness releasing us from guilt and from shame. It comes by believing in Jesus and the offer of God's grace first. Not because we're a part of a special group that gets this special one-time offer from God. And it's not because our parents knew Jesus' parents. 
And so he does something special for special people. We begin to see in Jesus' ministry that his offer of grace and salvation is available to all who would believe, not just the special shiny people. And then he goes on to give examples from the Old Testament of the fact that this is the way that it's always been. Elijah and Elisha offering God's grace and healing in a time when there was great disbelief and rejection of God in Israel to Gentiles, to people outside of God's people. Because they were willing to listen and because they were willing to believe, Gentiles outside of God's people were being healed, they were being sustained. And this is not a way to build a Twitter following in Nazareth. And so, number two, Jesus is rejected and condemned. He's rejected and condemned, especially by the entitled and the powerful. And verse 28 says, When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. There's some kind of murky uh, mob rule um, judgment happening about blasphemy in which together this group could justify putting, as they would say, a false teacher to death. So number 10 is that Jesus goes to church. Number nine is that he loves God's word. Number eight is that he came to proclaim good news. Seven, six, and five is that he cared for the poor and he gave sight to the blind and he liberated the oppressed. Number four is that that made him incredibly popular, but number five is that he offended and resisted people's prescriptions for his ministry, which resulted in being condemned and rejected. But the number one thing about Jesus' life in ministry was that he was impossible to kill. Verse 30 says, and he passed through their midst and went away. Okay. Luke decides that we don't get to know how that happened. There isn't an explanation of what Jesus did, how he escaped this mob. But what it means, uh, what it means that he passed through their midst, uh, we don't know. But what we do know is that this won't be the last time that people will get offended by his message. Um, and his message is that there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor, that we're not entitled to God's love, but that we're all sinners in need of grace and that the way to salvation and to jubilee is confession and repentance and belief. And we don't like to hear that because we want to be special. And so... Uh, this isn't the last time that uh, people will reject Jesus and his refusal to uh, act to their prescription, whether it's their political agenda or whether it's their social platform, Jesus didn't fit. He had come to do something about the root cause of the things that plague us, the root cause of poverty and physical ailments and the ways that we oppress and hurt one another. He'd come to do something about sin and this thing, uh, our rebellion that has alienated us from God. And everything he did and everything he said pointed to that mission. It was the purpose of the healings. It was the purpose of the feedings. It was the purpose of the teachings. And ultimately, that would culminate in him giving his life as a ransom 
for our sin. Giving his life, that's how the scripture describes it. To make clear that Jesus uh, wasn't just lucky this time to get away from the mob, but got overcome the next time and they got the best of him. We're told that no one took his life from him, but that he laid it down willingly and that he took it back up when he had paid the price for our sin and for our rebellion against God. As easily, somehow, as passing through their midst, he passed through death and offers us the same. My friends, um, a little microcosm of the ministry of Jesus that we're going to explore uh, through the next, through the next few weeks. Uh, we'll gather to worship because it's what we were made to do. We'll try to grow as Christ did in our love for his word. Uh, we'll make sure that in the words that we speak and in the actions that we do, we proclaim the good news of Jesus. Uh, we'll follow our leaders and our servants and our deacons and try to see how it is uh, that we might respond truthfully to the, the ravages of sin around us. We will... Uh, struggle to resist the priorities that get put on us by our culture. That will not lead to popularity. Uh, but when we feel overwhelmed and condemned, either by our sin or by uh, the world around us, we are invited to come to the table. 